Welcome back to Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. My name is Bob Kaler, one of the co-hosts of the podcast, and we've reached the last of the talks from the Global Gathering, which took place on May 1st, 2021 in Montgomery, Alabama. And you got a chance to hear from my friend Brian Collier, who is pastor of The Orchard, which is a church with several sites in Mississippi. And uh, he talked in, in his address about the things that make for peace. And so I hope that you'll dive deep into Brian's talk, um, and especially some of the things that he mentions about living as a people of peace in this environment. Uh, it is a great joy to be with you today. Uh, I'd like to apologize here on the front end Front end, if there are any uh, language barriers. I'm from Mississippi. <laughs> oh, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. Mississippi is how I should have said that. Uh, Walter and uh, Keith got ahead of almost everything but did not consider subtitles for me. So <laughs> my, good friend, my good friend, the Reverend Dr. Carolyn Moore, offered to, uh, to interpret for me, but she's from Georgia, and I didn't think that'd be much of an improvement anyway. So... <laughs> We are, I, am, I am very excited to be with you. We're going to be uh, just looking for a few minutes at uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. So if you have your Bibles or your mobile device, if you'd like to follow along, I invite you to do that. These are the words of Jesus. John's Gospel, chapter 20, verses, begin reading with verse 19. This is a post-resurrection account. John writes, that Sunday evening as the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he showed the wounds, them the wounds in his hands and side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is the word of God for the people of God. So it's every communicator's dream to be the last speaker <laughs> in the afternoon session telling the people who have gathered about something they already know. The title of my conversation with you this afternoon is to be Go Global with Shalom for the Healing of the Nations. That is, to offer the world peace, which is something much more significant than the English translation of the word captures. We know that shalom means completeness, soundness, welfare, wholeness of God, as he intended it with him and with our brothers and sisters. I'm not here to unpack that word for you any more than I've already done. I just instead want to spend a few minutes this afternoon reminding you uh, that it is our responsibility that we are to carry God's shalom to the world that may know the word but is not experiencing it. They, they know what the word is, but they are not experiencing it. When we look at John's account, post-resurrection account, when Jesus appears to his disciples, he shows them his wounds, he says, peace be with you. And then, again, he challenges them 
by saying, Peace be with you. And then, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now, I know that the Greek, arene, is not the same as shalom of Hebrew, but it is a similar sentiment. Then, after breathing on the disciples and saying, Peace be with you, as as the, as the Father sent me, now I am sending you, he says, get out there and do the work of reconciliation. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive anyone's sins, they are not forgiven. But go announce to them the offering of reconciliation, peace, shalom, so that they might know healing as I intended it, completeness, soundness, welfare, wholeness in its fullness. But before the disciples could offer that to the world, they had to settle this matter for themselves. They had to experience it because they could not give to the world what they had not experienced themselves. I'm not just talking about making peace with the chaos and the disruption of the last few days. We know this is on Easter Sunday evening when Jesus is standing among them. Instead, I talk more, I think in more about the repenting that must have had to happen in the disciples so they can make they can make peace with the self-centeredness, self-promoting attitudes that had said, who is the greatest? Let's argue about that, that had been a posture for them over the last few years of walking with Jesus. They had, they had to settle peace for themselves before they could be agents of peace to the world. But by the gift of the Holy Spirit that we read about in Acts 1, in the falling of the Holy Spirit that we read here in John, then we, we know that that's exactly what happened, right? Probably the most, the most shocking prayer, maybe one of the most shocking developments in all of the book of Acts is when the disciples gather to replace Judas and they don't say, I want who I want. Instead they say, I don't want who I want. We don't, we don't want who Peter wants. Lord, you know every heart. We want who you want. It's a little bit shocking given the history of the disciples and their self-centeredness. They're working for their own good, now working for the kingdom's good, now saying, Lord, you show us which one you want. And out of that surrender, and out of the falling of the Holy Spirit, then the church is born, characterized as a community with a deep sense of awe and devotion to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the sharing of meals, to the Lord's Supper and prayer and joy and generosity. All fruits of the Spirit that are given to people who are at peace with God and at peace with one another. And they go forward into the world to declare the offering of God's peace and reconciliation to all humanity. But fast forward with me about 150 years, and as an expression of this peace, and as a medicine for the natural internal struggle that happens with people, even people in the church, the early church father Tertullian instructed Christians after their prayers to give each other a kiss of peace. Alan Kreider writes an amazing book. I recommend it to you highly. It's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And in it he notes that kissing in a religious uh, ceremony, uh, kissing in a religious setting was countercultural. It, it made Christians uncomfortable. He compares it to how many Christians feel about foot washing today. This, it, we, we know we're kind of supposed to do it, it kinda, but, but something's not exactly right that makes us feel comfortable with that. But however, Tertullian insisted, and he insisted for two reasons. The first was that it defined their identity as a people of peace. 
The, the sharing of the kiss of peace defined their identity as a people of peace. By means of the kiss, he writes, family members in the presence of God developed a habit that expressed outwardly what was supposed to be happening inwardly and spiritually and relationally among new brothers and sisters in Christ. But Kreider adds there was a second reason Tertullian insisted on this kiss of peace is that it maintained their life as a community of peace. He said, imagine this. Christians had to learn to get, live together, and that was not easy. They were, they were constantly missing each other's cultural cues. They were constantly stepping into each other's lives in ways that the other felt inappropriate or they were offended by. Yet when they gathered for their weekly worship gatherings and they prayed and they shared in the Lord's Supper, they had to repent to one another and offer each other the expression of what it meant to be in a family. It maintained their life together by forcing them to deal with the disunity so that they could offer each other the unifying kiss of peace. Now, if we were not in the middle of a global pandemic... I would ask you all to greet one another with a kiss of peace. But of course, given the circumstances, that would be unwise. However, even though we cannot kiss, we must not forget that in answering Christ's call to carry his peace, his shalom to the world, that we cannot give to others what we do not possess. Our identity must be as a people of peace, and we must maintain our life together as a community of peace. And I feel this in a particular way for the Wesleyan Covenant Association. Our, our identity must be as a people of peace, and we must maintain our life together as a community of peace. Maybe next year when we gather, we'll, we'll share the kiss of peace. But until then, but until then, Let's commit to acting in ways consistent with our identity as a people of peace and let us maintain our life together as a community of peace. There are many things in the year ahead. There are many, thing in the, many things in the years ahead in United Methodism that we have no control over. Can we agree to that? We have no control over when the general conference will be held, no matter what they say, right? We, we have no control over whether the protocol will pass or how plain or smooth the pathway forward will be. But we do have control over this, living out our identity as a people of peace and maintaining our life together as a community of peace. In the spring of, 2000, in the, in the spring of 2017, I was flying to the WCA Council board meeting and uh, I ran into another board member who was flying with a new board member and we bumped into each other at a connecting airport. Uh, very quickly, we introduced ourselves. I said, my name is Brian Collier. He said, Brian Collier, I know that name for some reason. And, and I'm not one who will naturally relieve the tension. I like to leave it there a little bit. And so we all got on the plane, we made our flight, we got off. When I got off the plane, he was in front of me, and he was waiting for me at the door of uh, the jetway, and he goes, now I know why I know your name. And I said, uh, why is that? He said, you're the bad one. <laughs> he said it jokingly. I said, well, it depends on which crowd you're asking, honestly. I mean, I, for those of you who may have missed it, in the spring of 2017, 
the orchard, the family of churches that I own, the own. Ooh, that's terrible. <laughs> they really own me much more than I own them, I can promise you. The family of churches that I lead negotiate a peaceful withdrawal from the United Methodist Church. I'm an odd bird in the room, brothers and sisters. I am not a United Methodist anymore. I tell people all the time, I'm Methodist. I'm just not United Methodist anymore. And that came with great grieving and great aching and groaning on my part. The climate of separation has changed dramatically in the four years since we have exited, but I still get asked all the time, what is, what is the most significant learning from that time? And I always say the same thing. Keep control of the tone of the conversation. Keep control of the tone of the conversation. We wanted to withdraw peacefully. We wanted to honor our denomination. We wanted to meet any obligations that we could. We wanted it to be honoring and, and a witness to what brothers and sisters in the faith can share. We wanted it to be civil. We did not want it to be hateful. We did not want it to be vicious. We did not want it to be litigious. And by the grace of God, our yeses and our noes were offered as a people whose identity and our life together was one of peace. Let me say again, the climate of separation has changed dramatically in the last four years. I understand that. But, but, if, we're, but if we're not careful, we will look to others or to them, whoever them is, for the solution to our difficulty in being a people of peace. If they would just leave me alone, if they would just get out of my way, I could be a person of peace, right? Isn't that the way it works? Michael Ramsden, who is an apologist, was telling a story about a colleague of his who was doing a seminar, and he asked his audience to close their eyes and to imagine peace. And after several minutes, he said, okay, tell me about what you were imagining. And one person uh, described a field full of flowers and trees and soft breeze, another mountaintops, snow-capped mountaintops, another a calm lake. And Ramsden, after a few minutes, after everyone had described their picture, their mental picture of peace, noticed one thing. There were no people in any of their imaginations. Here was his comment, isn't it interesting, when asked to imagine peace, the first thing we do is to eliminate everyone else. I'm not asking for a time of confession today, but isn't that true of us? When we imagine peace, the first thing we do is to eliminate everybody who stands in our way. But brothers and sisters... The early church was called to be a people of peace in a world that was not peaceful. And the call to us is, is no less. We, we must live out our identity as a people of peace and maintain our life together as a community of peace in the midst of a world that is not peaceful. So that the overflow of our lives and the overflow of our lives together is an offering to peace an offering of peace to the world, we can, in the power of the Holy Spirit then, be a witness to what Christ has done for us and what Christ longs to do for the world, and that is offer them peace that they cannot find anywhere else. Admittedly, going global is a different kind of challenge. I read 23 books during the pandemic. 
It was uh, just feeding a habit I already had. That habit grew. Maybe you uh, experienced the same kind of uh, opportunity to read in isolation. But the one that has affected me the most long-term is the one I've already mentioned, Alan Kreider's book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. It's a 300-page book, but there are three words in the middle of that book that I will never forget. In it, he is quoting Scottish missiologist Andrew Walls, who says that whenever Christianity enters a culture, enculturation is inevitable. And the Christian Christianity always interacts with the culture in two ways. The first he calls the indigenizing principle. That is, that Christianity enters the culture, it sees where the culture is aligned with the work of Christ, even unknowingly. It is aligned with the work of Christ, it is a work with the mission of Christ, it aligned with the mission of Christ, and it joins in. It celebrates where the culture is doing the work of Christ. In, in caring for the poor and taking care of the least and the last and the lost, it, it joins in with the culture and it celebrates. That's the indigenizing principle. But the second way that Christianity interacts with the culture is what he calls the pilgrim principle. He says, so Christianity, Christianity enters the culture and it realizes that there are practices in the culture that are at odds with Christianity. And when it does that, here are his words. So Christianity then critiques the culture and seeks to embody the alternatives that point the way forward for the healing of the culture. I want to read that sentence to you again. Christianity critiques the culture and seeks to embody the alternatives that point the way forward for the healing of the culture. I don't know if you picked up on the three words, but the ones for me are they embody the alternatives. These three words have consumed me since I read that book. Kreider says this was the primary evangelistic strategy of the early church, the church that grew exponentially, that in spite of the call to declare, in spite of the, of the call to announce, their primary strategy was to embody. Certainly, this is the challenge of the WCA. We, we have a lot of opportunity to talk about the alternatives, right? That's our message. There, there's, there's a difference. There, it doesn't have to be this way. But, but we've got to do more than just talk about the alternative. It, it's it's got to be more than offering the alternative. As Keith so aptly said, something's coming and it's coming soon. But we have to do more than offer the alternative. We have to embody the alternative. And not just for the founding of a new family, our new denomination, but for leaning faithfully into the mission of Jesus in the world. We all know the message, right? We, we all know the message to declare shalom, to, to declare God's peace for the healing of the nations mean, means that we declare that lasting peace, peace that does not end, peace with God and peace with our brothers and sisters will never be found in any place other than in a relationship with a crucified, risen, and glorified Jesus. However, however, what we say will be strengthened or diminished by the example of our lives. What we say to the world as they are watching how we interact with our brothers and sisters is so significant. My dad was a high school basketball coach. He said, he once gave me a 
a placard. He read this. It hangs on my wall still to this day. What you do speaks so loudly that I can't hear what you say. Quite possibly no word, no other words, no words other than scripture better capture the strategy of the people of Jesus for going global with shalom for the healing of the nations than embody the alternative. We look at the global news cycle and we know this. In every place, in every country, in every culture, peace is either elusive or it's counterfeit. It's elusive. People have given up on finding peace. And so they settle in to a life of emotional and relational and spiritual tumult because there is no hope in their estimation. Or peace is counterfeit. They purchase a counterfeit peace, buying the world's ideas about what will bring them peace and finding only temporary worldly respite that is not enduring or satisfying. So they pour themselves out or they wring the life out of others in order to get a counterfeit peace. But listen to me. But we... We, we know the one who, under whose covering we can lie down in peace and sleep. We know the one who will keep us in perfect peace when our minds are stayed on him. We know the one who sends the Holy Spirit that we might know the fruits of the Spirit that is love and joy and peace. We know the peace that passes understanding. We know the Prince of Peace. We know the experience, and now are called to become the agents who carry shalom to the world for their healing. But knowing this is not enough, and proclaiming it is not enough, we must embody this alternative. Because the world is a little bit like you are today. The announcement of peace from the church seems a little bit like the last speaker of the day in an afternoon session telling the gathered about something they already know. The time for talk is over, brothers and sisters. We must embody the alternative because Christ himself has breathed on us and said, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Shalom is fundamental to our identity. It is central to our life together, and our declaring it with our lives is essential for the healing of the nations. Amen. Well, I'm joining Brian Collier via Zoom after the global gathering, and uh, Brian is sitting at home, I think, uh, comfortable uh, surveying all the churches that he owns, right, Brian? <laughs> yeah, you asked me, was there anything I would add before we begin, and I said, well, there's something I would definitely like to subtract, and that's where I got caught up in uh, trying to remember where I was going and said, uh, the family of the orchard, the family of churches that I own and uh, <laughs> clearly in my notes and in reality, it's the family of churches that I lead. And if anybody owns anybody, they own me much more than I own them. Nevertheless, things you wish you could take back. That's, that's always true. Misspeaking is part of preaching at times. I think that's the, yeah, there are plenty of times, usually not something terrible. So I think everybody was with you on that. But you were talking a lot about peace in your talk and uh, identifying people of peace, maintaining 
uh, the life of a community of peace. Uh, what other kind of things do you want to add to that? Because I, I thought I thought what you said was really helpful, and especially when you quoted from the uh, Alan Kreider book, which I, I'm along with you. That's been a book I think everyone should read, Patient Ferment of the Early Church. I think in the last 10 years, that's probably one of the most influential books that I've read. I completely agree. It, it, uh, it just unravels the tension, I think. Um, I think it unravels the, the stress that we feel about having to come to a conclusion or about to push things to a conclusion and to think that um, the early church uh, rode the wave of culture uh, to accomplish God's purposes. They didn't try to force anything. And I, 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 that doesn't perfectly align with what the WCA is dealing with now, but I do think it's instructive for sure. There was a, there was a sense of patience, yeah. patience and helping people grow in character, become people of peace. It wasn't focused so much on, on doctrine or on even, um, you know, practice like worship or evangelism or things like that. The point that he makes in the book going through the early Christian documents is, is that it was character formation, Sorry. particularly character formation around the Sermon on the Mount that was, that was key to the, the early church's growth and developing a people of peace. Yep. Yeah. They just, they just looked so different than the hurried tense self-preserving, self-asserting culture that they lived in, that people were drawn to that. And uh, that's a question he asked over and over again in the book is, what was it about the early church that drew the community, that drew the world to it? And it was their, their, their patience, the way they lived their lives with a sense of God's kairos in the, in the middle of everything. Now, you have um, separated from the UMC. The, yep. the family of churches that you pastor has <laughs> separated from the UMC. Right. And uh, you and I have talked about this before, but, but what are you learning out of that process? And what keeps you connected to the WCA and the Global Methodist Church? Yeah. So a couple of, couple of pluses and minuses, I think, that we've learned in that process. Uh, I'll start with uh, the minuses, which... Um, can be construed as positives. What I say is that it, we are really as churches, especially those of us in the Wesleyan family are not created for independence. We are not created to stand alone. So the thing I would say, the, the negative thing we've learned is how important it is for us to be in a connection of some kind. And so there's this aching, this, this longing to be part of a larger family. Uh, and I, I think in some ways it's wired into our DNA. Certainly that's true of believers, but I'm saying that in the sense that whole communities of faith need to be connected to other whole communities of faith. So one of the negatives we're learning uh, is how hard it is to be independent or what we would call in limbo at the mo moment. Somebody asked me about our relationship with the WCA. I said, well, we're a WCA church. Are we going to join the Global Methodist Church? And I said, well, when the Global Methodist Church launches, we, we can tell you. And I said, you know, we really can't make a decision about something that, that's not yet. Um, so I would say that's one significant thing we're learning, how deeply we need to be in family and in community of, of that sort. And then 
but I, but I would say the other things we are learning is how joyful it is to not always be in doctrinal dispute. Uh, I, I, I can't tell you the, how, how freeing it is. I, and we've been, we, we have left in 2017. So this is our fourth year. May will be our fourth year out. And I can't tell you, it probably took me a year to detox. And in the last three years, I have not thought about the doctrinal dispute in the Methodist church. When I wake up in the morning, I think about the mission of Jesus in the world. Now, daily, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are still in the UMC. And so I'm still connected to that, but there's not the, the heaviness of it or the distraction of it. And so I, that's the other side, I would say. One of our great learnings is how freeing it is to think about the mission of Jesus without doctrinal dispute or doctrinal distraction. And that's, it's a great blessing. Uh, that, that, those two things would be at the top of our list. It's interesting to me that you say that because I, I, I think about, you know, as you were talking about what makes for peace, we we've learned how to fight really well. Yeah. And several of the speakers mentioned this during the global gathering. We've learned how to fight really well. Jeff Greenway talks about this all the time. And yet we, we have to learn how to be people of peace with one another. And, and it was interesting at the global legislative assembly, we had some significant debate around some things, but there was a sense in that debate that no one was trying to win or lose. We were trying to get to the best place for, for all of us. Yeah. And that felt really good to me because even and, and it seems like, you know, a lot of the stuff that I lead is always controversial, accountable discipleship, clergy deployment. Like, thank you very much for that, Keith. I really appreciate it. But, but uh, and I joke with him about that all the time, but, but <laughs> everything that we do in those areas, when we have pushback, when we have feedback and input, all of that is positive because it's saying we care about this so much. We want to do it right. Right. And it's not about winners and losers. And, and one of the things you said, uh, quoting from Alan Kreider's book, uh, The Pilgrim Principle, Christianity critiques the culture and seeks to embody the alternatives that lead to healing and wholeness. Mm-hmm. How do you see us as the Global Methodist Church slash WCA slash whatever the new thing is going to be embodying the alternatives? Yeah, well, I, I would say... Uh, a microcosm of that is what the orchard has tried to do in its four years since. And that is having settled our doctrinal differences, having at least doctrinally aligned with one another, that, that we are, we are overwhelmed by consumed with the mission of Jesus in the world, which um, is not only peace for the world, not only peace for those who yet to hear the good news, but it's peace for the church because we're aligned with what we were created to do. And so I think some of the dissonance that we feel in our current circumstance is that we're, we're not doing what we were created to do at all. And we are distracted by and and really kept from that mission. And, and whenever the doctrinal dispute is be able to be able to be tabled or put aside, not that doctrine is always going to be the center, but the dispute put aside, then the, there is, there is synergy. There is flow is the word I would use. There is peace that, 
the church can exhibit because we are aligned with the mission of Jesus. And to be fair, I just don't think the world has a lot of examples of that. They, they don't, they don't see that very often. They hear by the word, they don't see it very often. They certainly don't experience it very often. Um, I wrote, I wrote my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation. I was inspired by a book called the fifth discipline by Peter Singe. Mm. You familiar with that book? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So most everybody knows uh, the word systems thinking, which is now they do. It's the, that is the fifth discipline that Singe identifies. There are four others. The fifth one is systems thinking. That's just the, the idea that if you affect one part of a system, it affects the whole system. We're certainly seeing that within United Methodism. Uh, what captured me about that book was in, in the very, on the very first page in the book, he says, there is, um, there is a, a feeling of flow. There's a feeling of alignment. There's a feeling of being on a perfectly aligned team that sometimes we get in sports the mus- jazz musicians kind of experience it sometimes where everything just kind of, they, they just get rolling. It's so pleasurable and joyful. And because there's no wasted energy, there are no wasted ideas. Everything about what they are doing and are doing together is moving in a direction that gives life to them and gives life to the product. Now that's, a, this is a Jewish MIT business professor who's writing this book. So he says that, and he says, the best example I know of this is the New Testament church. Hmm. A a Jewish MIT business professor says the best example of all the examples he could give. He already gives, given some sports and music and other opportunities. He says, the best example I know of this is the New Testament church because it was, he said it had a spirit of metanoia. Now we know that word, we, we interpret that word as repent, but it is to turn, right? To respond to, to be nimble enough to adjust to what, to what uh, is coming at us because we know who we are. We know what we're supposed to be about. Now, the most, the most damning thing in that book is that it's a 385 page book. And for the next 384 pages, he never mentions the New Testament church again. You know why that is? Cause we're not that church anymore. Right. Right. And so when you, when you say how, how does what we're talking about affect the world, think of the impact of the new Testament church on its, on its world. And if we could recapture that, if God could do that in us again, what could, what effect could that have on the world? There's so much value in reading early church fathers. I've been kind of driven to that and mothers I've yeah. driven to that in recent years more and more, which was never brought up. I mean, it's almost like in Protestantism, everything began in 1517 <laughs> and, and moved on from there. Right. But there's such a rich history pre Constantine that teaches us. I mean, you quoted from Tertullian yeah. in, in your, in your talk and, and thinking about some of those early church fathers and mothers and their, their wisdom around these things and what they focused on, was not on structure and on power and the, the Constantinian influence kind of really, I think, I think made us more like the Roman empire and put us into a political system that now we're reaping the fruits of even more and more. Sure. You know, when you look at the church splitting left and right, basically along political, political lines, it says that we have not adopted the politics of the kingdom 
which is a politics of peace. And so we need to think about how we're going to recapture that and get and get beyond that. Um, I, I I thought what you said was was very helpful in terms of of learning and saying that you know we know the message we have to embody it. What we say will be strengthened or diminished by what we do. So we can no longer simply say, "Hey, we've got all of our doctrine straight unless we embody it." That's right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm. I'm, I'm excited. Um, you inspire me. Uh, it's been great to get to know you better and, and to become friends over the last several years of serving on the council together. I look forward to serving together in the new church uh, when that comes about. Um, you were the last speaker of the day. Not always an easy task, but I thought you brought it home. <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind. I appreciate that, Bob. I value your friendship and your leadership so much and, and uh, for you to offer those uh, compliments means a lot to me because uh, I, I know that you are uh, clear-minded, uh, clear thinker, and you you don't say things flippantly. So I appreciate that very much. Well, we appreciate you and appreciate uh, your talk. And I hope that people will take it to heart and ask, how can we be people of peace? Um, not only amongst ourselves, but to those who are in the world and even to those who may be our opponents in many ways. Uh, this is the call, and especially to those who may be our opponents uh, in whatever realm we find ourselves. Well, thanks, Brian, for joining me. And uh, thank you all for joining us here on Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. As always, you can send us your comments and questions at podcast at wesleyancovenant.org via email. Follow us on WCA Pod. You can find out more about the Wesleyan Covenant Association at wesleyancovenant.org, more about the Global Methodist Church at globalmethodist.org, and uh, also leave us a, a review on your favorite podcast platform. It does continue to help us grow our audience and let people know more about the WCA, about the Global Methodist Church, and about great leaders like Brian Collier and so many of the others that you heard speak over the course of the global gathering. We'll see you next time here on Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. Have a great week.